Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. This week, we're resurfacing a delightful episode that originally ran in April of 2020 and which features two of our favorite songwriter performers, Matt Berninger of The National and Amy Mann. Their chat was inspired by the release of an excellent documentary about other music, the revered New York record store that closed in 2016. The conversation veers into many other areas as well, including creativity during the pandemic. The challenges of the past couple of years were no match for these two. Berninger released a solo album called Serpentine Prison last year, and Mann just released Queens of the Summer Hotel, a set of new songs inspired by the book Girl Interrupted. Enjoy, and we'll be back with a brand new episode next week. I use GarageBand for everything I do, and I don't even plug a microphone in because... I just use it as the writing tool, you know, and I just mumble oh, into yeah. it. And for me, the easier, the e- just so I can open up my laptop, open up a GarageBand file and just start singing. It's better for me than to have to plug something in. And even one little extra step, you know, is just such a nuisance. So I always just, the writing process is, is different than the recording process, you know, for me. Like once a song is done, then I'll worry about the microphones. And actually then I won't even worry. Someone else will worry about the microphones, but. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to me, those are two different jobs. And I long ago realized, like, the learning curve for me to figure out how to have a home studio was just, it was just too steep and it would take too much time and effort. So I don't even bother with, I mean, I just, I do GarageBand for, because I have a podcast with my friend Ted Leo. Yeah. But um, for writing, I just do like voice memos on the iPhone. Yeah. No, I know. I know. I don't play instruments and stuff, so it's, I, I don't really need to have like a soundproof place for any of that kind of thing and but um I also don't want to necessarily have a studio at home because it just you feel like you're never at home then you know you feel like you're always at a job or sort of and so that being said it is Aaron has this barn studio upstate New York which is just so nice to, to to be able to just camp out there for a while so I love being in studios when it's like record time but not really before yeah no I totally get it it's like you have to concentrate on the job at hand yeah. And yeah, you can't mix the two. Yeah. Are you in LA? I am. Yeah, and I'm I in assume Venice. you were in New York. You're in Venice? Yeah, I moved to Venice, California about oh. seven years ago, actually. Yeah. I moved to New York right out of college and was there for 18 years. And then uh, my wife and daughter and I have, a, I have an 11 year old. And but, wow. but we moved out here about seven years ago and just fell in love. And yeah, I don't have any plans to leave for a while. But, but, did you go to other music in New York a lot? No, I never did. Like, I, it's clearly like a very New York institution. I mean, I'd sort of heard about it here and there, but the documentary was like really the first deep dive. Did you go to other music? Were you familiar with it? Yeah, I, I worked at the Puck Building, which is at the corner of like uh, Lafayette and Houston and about four blocks just right down the street from it. And I worked there for about 10 years and, and I went, I went there, this is in the like late, it opened in, I think, 99 or I can't remember, but but right around there. Yeah. So for about, for about eight or 10 years, I would go there um, and I was working at a design job and I was designing websites and I would go there a couple times a week and buy two or three records. And I was spending most of my money on records or going to Mercury Lounge, which is just a few blocks from there. Or going, so 
So it was a really special, it was a special store. But the truth is, I mean, there is like almost every independent record store has that same vibe of, I mean, unless it's a big Tower Records or a big, you know, Best Buy or something like that. If it's an independently owned record store, it's usually pretty curated. And the people usually have passionate feelings about music and kind of are always intimidating. But I mean, so other music was a really, really, really well curated shop and with really kind of intense music lovers who worked there. And it was intimidating. But I mean, every little, like, I remember there was a record store in Cincinnati called Wizards that I would go to. And I remember just being so intimidated going into there, those places. But they're all, all of that is like, you're going into a place where there's something you want to know about because you know you love it, but yeah. these people know more about it and and you feel like a fool and you always feel stupid. But that's it's really funny. Yeah, the aspect that I got, I was it was kind of unexpected that, um, you know, people going in, into the record store would find the clerks to be like overbearing or intimidating or supercilious. And like, <laughs> to me, it's like, it's, it's very, I don't know, there's something really funny about that. I used to work at a, like back in, kind of starting in like 1980, I think, I worked at Newbury Comics in oh, Boston, uh, yeah. which started out as, you know, a comic book store with some records and then became a record store. And, you know, we were the super indie record store in town. You know, and of course I can't imagine that that we came across like that, but I don't know, like, it's hard to say just because when you work at a store and you listen to everything that comes in, you're inevitably going to have a, you know, you're going to be soaking in a different kind of uh, musical thing than than most people. Yeah. The other thing also is like most record shops, I mean, any any small independent shop, whether you're selling, you know, coffee or, or you know, a, a flower shop, uh, I mean, flower shops are usually pretty sweet, but but it, it, and you're going to have people that are, that are actually just working a job all day long. But at a coffee shop, they don't have everybody asking like millions of questions about like what coffee is and like, you know, what all the people kind of know what they want. But but but, but I, I never minded people with those attitudes. I, I kind of wanted I mean, I don't like when people treat you like like you're dumb, but um, I like people who uh, knew more than I did, you know, and who, yeah, who knew yeah. what the cool stuff was and had, I wanted them to tell me what was better than the average crap that was on the radio. I, I was searching for someone who could help me find better stuff. So I kind of respected them. I, I didn't always feel comfortable, but I, it was all right. You know, I didn't mind it. It's nice when people are really enthusiastic about something and really care about something. I think that when that goes over to they're identifying with it a little too closely, you know, like, because you're right, like nobody at Starbucks is, has a personal identification with a certain kind of coffee. Yeah, yeah. I stand by the flat white. Right. Yeah, nobody has that. And people working at record shops, they're in there because they, music is, is, is really important. It's a big deal to them. You know, it's like nobody yeah. goes into yeah. selling records to be upwardly mobile, you know, to, unless you're trying to start a giant chain and all this. But most of them are just trying to go to work at a place surrounded with things they like and promote the things they like. But it's still a job and I can, I, I never minded the, the people at other, I mean, there, there was attitude there, but I was so happy because they had, they were directing me towards so much better stuff than I would have just like grabbed off the, the you know, but by listening to radio, all the, the stuff that they were selling yeah. wasn't, you wouldn't hear it anywhere else. And no. I discovered, you know, so many artists that led me to so many other artists just from that one shop. 
so yeah, it was it's it definitely defined a lot of my musical sort of fabric, that shop. And every other shop before that, you know, in Cincinnati and all the little ones I would go to. But um so Newberry Comics was your shop. Um Yeah. And you know, I worked there and there there was nothing better than, you know, getting the a shipment of records in from England and, you know, it was all stuff like if you read the music papers from England, which we all did, you know, like we were all obsessed with the NME. Yeah. And, you know, you'd see these records, you know, like a certain ratio or like the birthday party or, you know, just weird stuff that you had read about. And, you know, and then we could play records in the store and listen to them right there. And that was just like very exciting. You know, it's, it's, there's something exciting about just allowing yourself to be exposed to different music and see what's out there, even if it's kind of weird. And even if you don't necessarily like, like it, it's good to know about it and spend time with it. Yeah. And there's also a thing I remember like going to other music and often seeing a lot of the same people there, people that work there. And then I would go to see, you know, shows at Brownies or, or uh, Luna Lounge or, or Mercury Lounge. And I'd see the same people. Right. And yeah. And that was a thing. And I remember, you know, the Strokes were like a touch point in New York and um, a bunch of those bands, but other music put the Strokes, you know, modern AGP on that front, on this little front shelf. And it, it wasn't available anywhere here yet. It was from the UK and it was an import and it just sold out immediately. And then they, they did these shows and it was like, you kind of knew who went and got that EP because you were talking to people like, hey, did you get the EP? They only had like five. And then you would go to the yeah. show and like everyone who bought that EP is at that show. So there was it was a community between the clubs, between the record stores. There's a whole ecosystem in the bars, all the little bars around there, you know, and it was a, a crucible of experimentation and people sharing influences and favorite stuff. And but that's that that happens in every town. And I mean, L.A. has places like I mean, has the record stores. I mean, I, I shop at a, at a vinyl place called Atomic Records on Venice, but places like Largo, who, you know, and, and there's these communities. Yeah. And, and I do I, I think in L.A. there's a really, really, really rich community of of venues and, and musicians and bands and Silver Lake and that whole neighborhood and, and everything. I, I it feels it feels like every city has I mean Ohio and Dayton where I came from had that. There was this little scene of bands like Afghan Wigs and Breeders and Tiger Lilies and and Lizard ninety nine that were, you know, you you'd see them at the record stores, you'd see them at the bars, then you go see their gig, you know, and that's happening here, I think in LA too. Would you, do you think so? Well, there's something, you know, I am sort of part of the Largo scene, like, and I do find that to have a place to go, to have, you know, different musicians that you can interact with, also comedians, like, you know, Largo was the place I met all my comedian friends and to have that kind of cross-pollinization, it does create a, a sense of community and music is so much a essential part of that community. It's really the glue for that, that kind of scene. That's really an important part of my life. You know, like, I think that's like what was a sad thing about other music is you really saw how that created a community. And the idea that that record store would go out of business was just really by the end of it. Like, even though I had never been there and like didn't really, you know, it wasn't really part of my scene. It was really so heartbreaking to see it fall apart because it's, you know, a whole family Mm -hmm. that, that got splintered and shattered and you know, with nothing else to bind them together. Well, uh, Josh, who's one of the co-founders in that, Josh Maydell, he went on and he works for Secretly Canadian, the Secretly Distribution stuff. So 
What's really interesting about like the, the community of all the people he would buy records from, he's very much still involved in like f- figuring out how to spread good music around. And I, I have a question for you. Uh, it's kind of about, I mean, Largo and, and people like Mark Flanagan, who, you know, curates all that stuff and he brings in the comedians. And I've done some things at Largo with, with like Pete Holmes. And one of my favorite moments was Pete Holmes, the comedian, asked me to be on his special at Largo, and I was going to do a cover of a Perfume Genius song, but I can't play the piano. And so Flanny said, well, let me just see if I can find somebody. And 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 I get there, and he's like, oh, John's going to do it, and it's John Bryan. And so, so yeah. I, I, you know, John Bryan, like, Flanny can just, like, just bring John Bryan to play piano with me at, at Largo, and John will just, yeah, sure, and pop in. And and that kind of thing is is... There's all these different ways of having these communities, and Largo became kind of like a church for for comedy and for for music and for and Flanny, Mark Flanagan specifically. He just he brought all these people together, like Elliot Smith, you know, and and um. Yeah, I was just talking. I talked to him yesterday. Like he, he is that guy who is like the hub of a certain, you know, because all these musicians and comedians kind of come through, and he has a certain kind of relationship with them. But but I often go to him for ideas about. You know, I don't know if I'm playing a show and I need it. I mean, it's the same thing. Like if, you know, you need musicians or you need a comedian for a thing or if I'm putting my Christmas show together, what guest would be good? Like he's really great at chiming in with that, you know, kind of musical problem solving. Yeah, he, um, after Trump won, um, the Nationals manager, Brandon Reed and I started this thing, Seven Issues for Planned Parenthood, which was, I wanted to just put out a bunch of series of seven inches and I wanted, you know, comedians and poets and doctors and, and musicians and bands all to do like split singles together. Cause I thought the idea of a good argument from a lawyer or a doctor about, about the right to choose. And I thought that was, you know, something you should listen to over and over again, just like a good song. And so Flanny reached out on my behalf to Sarah Silverman and Zach, I, Zach Alvex, I, I knew a little bit, but she's, all these these incredible Jenny Slate and all these wonderful people that he brought into it, musicians too, um, and just on on his word because people trust his sense of communities, trust that he wants to do good things for good artists who are sending out the right kind of messages, and just because he endorsed me, I got people I'd never met to just without question send me send me jokes and send me stuff for this this series and. Yeah, it's just an example of how one person and one idea and one venue and one one creative ambition can create a, a really powerful network and a really inspiring network. Yeah, it's really incredible. And it's funny because I've known Flanny for years and years, but your description of him, it makes me realize like, yeah, that is a magical resource. Like that's a magical thing to have in your life to have somebody like that. Yeah, and like record stores, like a small business that's devoted to just the things you love. And Flanny managed to bring everything he loves into the same one small business, you know, yeah. a little theater. And and he's also, he's doing, like, I think, a TV show now and stuff about it. And it's just, he's so inspiring and, and kind of just like break the mold, which is right now, I mean, the mold of how musicians and artists keep the lights on is broken, right? So with, with COVID and every, you know, who knows, we might not be able to tour for a year, right? Have you, do you tour a lot still? I don't tour a ton, you know, and I didn't have anything scheduled till September, which, but, you know, I kind of feel like it's still, I don't think things are going to be back to normal by September. Did you have tours scheduled? Did you have shows that you had to cancel? 
I think I'm supposed to be in Australia now. Oh, man. Or no, maybe I would have been back from Australia, but I think that's, yeah. So we had, yeah, all kinds of stuff. So, wow. but it's, it's interesting because all of us are, are evolving and inventing new ways to do what we're doing. And, and, and I miss, you know, and it'll come back. And, and like the idea of not being in front of fans is, is heartbreaking. And, 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 but that'll, I know that'll come back eventually. But the thing that I've been really inspired by is how, many new ideas people have been having. Even with this other music doc, they figured out they were going to have like a theatrical release for it, but they couldn't. So yeah. they decided to sell the doc through independent record stores around the country that are shuttered right now. I bought the doc from a place called Skeleton Dust Records in Dayton, Ohio, through their website. I've never even been to that record store. That's such a great idea. Yeah, and, and so... Well, there's these new models that we're inventing. Like when one model falls apart, creative people just create new models. And um, Have you been doing, you know, sort of the home streaming performance thing? I did a Colbert thing and it was really fast. I mean, even watching how Colbert and all live television has, has reinvented itself. So, so much of the artifice is gone and you, you're seeing these really, really raw Really, really, and it's nice to just like, oh, that's 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 Colbert's, you know, cluttered living room. Yeah. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. I really enjoyed the uh, the SNL where everybody was. <laughs> like, I kind of really enjoyed that. I just did, um, uh, there's a thing called the 24-hour musicals or 24-hour plays. Some, yeah. some of them are plays, but they do musicals too. And usually it's like, you know, already a short musical, like 15 minutes with three songs. But because it's little online chunks, it was just, you know, one scene and one song. 
And it's, I just have to say, like, it's really fun. And it's really fun to see actors just make do with whatever props they have in their house and set up their phone and film a thing. And, you know, you realize, like, how much just comes down to great acting and, you know, funny writing and or personalities or, you know, good songs or whatever. Yeah. It's nice to kind of strip things down to basics. But I, you know, I haven't done any streaming just like solo performance stuff because I really like playing with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm sure I'll do some something, but I like having a band. I like having other people to interact with. Yeah. That's the other part of it that's, that's uh, I'm, I'm writing a lot and, uh, you know, just sending files back and forth, which is a way I've done it in a long time. But you still get together in a room and, and bang it out and have in band practice where it's no, and like a song gets gnarly yeah. and evolves. And, and, and it's almost, sometimes it feels a little bit like everyone's cooking the same meal in different kitchens where, yeah, all the ingredients are just perfect, but you just can't get them in the pot together to make it all, you know, the ratatouille. Know. It, just, it, it, it tastes like a salad, not ratatouille. Well, you miss that magical thing that happens when people are just in the same room together and everybody's listening to each other. And that's like really what makes the magic of a band yeah. or a magic of a live performance. When people listen to each other and it's like a flock of starlings where they suddenly change direction because, you know, they're all on the same wavelength. And boy, that's nice. I really missed that. Did you read Karen Russell's piece in The New Yorker about the flock of starlings? You just mentioned flock of starlings. No, There's a writer that that I really like named Karen Russell and my wife Corinne um, used to edit her when she was in The New Yorker, but she just wrote a piece in The New York New Yorker, sorry. And she described, um, she lives in Austin and, and she describes how, you know, watching the starlings and how they, how they move so quickly and they're, they're all, they have this sense and they all, you know, razor turns in the air and they, they bunch up and then they blade out behind the buildings and she just describes it so beautifully. And then she uses that metaphor to describe how the beginning of the COVID, there was, everyone is off in this chaos, but then when everyone started to understand and how, we're not all together, but we all sort of flocked to these. We all this this group think of everyone staying at home, and and how quickly we we we're all moving and adjusting to the environment and what's happening. The way starlings will just quickly, you know, a, a a danger this way, the whole group will suddenly swish, and and they they instantly are like paying attention to each other. And and a band is like that, but that kind of feels like everyone on the planet is a little bit. And that's what she's making this reference to. We're all yeah. this like, kind of quiet flock of starlings who just, we all grouped at home just because of the, everything's changing so quickly. And anyway, I, I just, yeah, we're in such a strange time. Well, we are herd animals, you know. It, yeah. it, I think like when when the herd finally does get a whiff of danger in the air, the herd will, will act swiftly. But I mean, sometimes it takes a lot of danger in the yeah, air for people right. to move. Like when I kind of look back on it, it it took me a little while. I was actually on a cruise that left uh, March seventh, and you know March seventh there were like some cases in the U.S. Yeah. and people were talking about it, and there was some conversation about like is this safe or is it not safe? But uh, you know, also the idea that there could be millions of people walking around asymptomatic wasn't really something that was talked about. And that that's really a game changer too. Yeah. But um, halfway through the cruise, I would see things on Twitter about how fast it was, it was happening. And 
by the time, you know, everybody got off, it was like, let's, you know, we got to get out of here. Yeah. Got to immediately go home and not leave. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, when when 9-11 happened, it was like the, this sense of, you know, of everything sort of changed. But but this, this feels just so more significant in a global sense. I mean, I know it's, it's not the first time there's been a pandemic, but it's been the first time we've all been so connected and, and it moves so fast. So, you know, the, the, the span, yeah. 18, whatever, the last... 1918 flu, 1918, yeah. yeah. And that was, you know, people weren't together so much. And then apart, they were, they were. But like, I was thinking about, you know, a traveling band, not the, you know, is 10,000 people in one place. And then you get 30 people and your crew and everybody on two little buses. And then you go to another place for 10,000 people. And it's, it's, I do feel like it might be a, a while before that kind of thing returns. Well, um, you're just a germ target. Right. I know. Like now I'm thinking <laughs> about in a totally different way that I was thinking about that today. You know, like all of the people you encounter, all of the flights, all of the all the, all the airplane mm-hmm. seat backs, all of them. Every day. You're, you're, on a, you're either oh on a God. bus or in a venue or on a plane or an airport every day. It's, you know, a traveling band is a hard thing in a pandemic, <laughs> right? And yeah. yeah. And then I've really started to process why people go to see live stuff. Like, you know, why do people go to want to see their favorite band in person on stage and crowd and stand have to stand for two hours, you know, or in a sweaty, hot place, which, you know, and you'd spend a lot of money to do it. And yeah. And it's because of this herding thing. You people want to be together and to connect and see other people that are that are just like a record store. You want to be around people that are not just like you, but that you feel that you can be your your real self around. You can be the weird version yeah, exactly. of yourself around them. And they're all crying. You know, you'll stand, I'll go to like a show and I'll cry next to a total stranger for, you know, a song that's 20 years old and that stranger. I just feel like that stranger would get me, you know? And so when you were yeah. in a room with 10,000 people, you're like, I think there's 10,000 people here that basically get me. If they like this band this much, the way I do, we must be more similar than than sometimes we think, you know? And I'm really yeah, you, you scared that about losing of, that. Yeah, there's a sense of connection and, and safety that comes from that sense of connection that uh, I, that is like very hard to grapple with. And, and also for me, like I need... I need to be around other people because I feel like I I need other people's brains near me to regulate my own brains, you know, like my own thought processes. But I I think that it can only happen when you're in a room with people. I think, you know, FaceTime helps, like looking at people helps, but I... I don't know, like, I don't know if that's mirror neurons working or how it works, but, (laughs) but I need to be around people to regulate my own thinking you know, in my own mood extremes. Yeah, people pull and push you in different directions. You know, I mean, if you talk about like a song, you know, a drummer can pull a song into an entirely different place by just speeding up a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. And when the drummer's working on a drum track at home and sends you the drum track and then you add to that and then you, you build from home, you, you lose a lot of that that dance. Yeah, I know. But on the other hand, things like, for example, watching, you know, Colbert, like you said, the writing is, is what matters. Like Colbert's monologues just from home in that living room without like an audience laughing are actually sometimes even more cutting and more hard hitting. And I don't know if they're taking the gloves off more, you know, it just feels more potent. 
somehow the points are being made even more of a, in, in a sort of a more, more dramatic or intense way without all the laugh track or the audience, without the artifice well, of that's the interesting. show. Yeah, that's interesting because if you're not performing, I don't know, like the idea of, the, of performing you're in front of an audience, it gives you a certain leeway. It gives you cover because you can say, you know, implicitly to the audience, like what I'm saying is more of a performance and less of a thing I really believe. But if it's one guy talking to you, yeah. it feels like that's a real thing that he's saying that he really believes. Yeah, And it's harder to shine it on as just like, uh, it's a joke or it's an exaggeration. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you also about, you have a label, right? You have your own label, Super yeah. Ego. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to kind of maybe do a label imprint too. And, it, and it's, Thinking of other music and how these these networks and these communities like record shops and places like Largo are, are uh, Largo is doing great, but but the record shops are are going away. I'm, I'm, labels can also be those communities. I mean, I used to buy you know like IR records from IRS, you know, and, and yeah. um, you know Matador for me was like I bought everything off of Matador. There was a period where literally I bought every Matador record and. Because I, I just trusted the curatorial yeah. sort of, I tried, the, the National tried to, we sent demos to Matador and, and they sent us a letter that, the, that, that, that our band would never be a Matador band. Um, it was like a brutal, it was oh like a brutal God. message. And, um, what is that? That's terrible. I know. <laughs> You'll never be a Matador band. It was in those days where Matador could, could write emails like that. Man. But, but it's the same sort of thing a little bit. Like the, the attitude of, a, of people that like, no, no, we are, we are, our stable of artists are really, really important and precious, and and we curate that. It's not just like throwing stuff at a wall to see if it sticks, and, and that's what the major yeah. labels do. And so I respect that kind of thing. You know, like the major labels are like Tower Records, but places like Matador or IRS or the indie labels, often they start, they're, they're like other music. And, and I want those labels and those radio stations and those late night shows to have attitude, you know, and... and yeah, I agree. I, and, you know, and I want there to be someone who cares about music, is uh, in love with music, who's listening to a lot of stuff and then at the end of the day comes to me and says, listen to these five bands, they're amazing. I know you'll like them. You know, because I, I feel like I don't listen to any modern music at all now because I'm lost in a sea of millions and millions of of artists that I can't figure out where to start. I don't know where to go. I need that curation. I need that like old FM radio DJ or the record store or the, mm-hmm. you know, the band scene or the club or the, you know, the one cool guy. Mm-hmm. And you're, and you're going to have to be that cool guy. I think it's up to you, Matt. <laughs> well, I do. Here's, I have a playlist that I, that I started doing. Um, I use Spotify a lot, but then I also have been going and buying a lot of vinyl. And I never actually owned any vinyl because I, when I started working, you know, I worked at a golf course and then I delivered pizzas and stuff. And by the time I was like wow. buying records, like vinyl was, I was buying tapes, you know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And my sister, I had some vinyl, but like it quickly turned it to cassettes. And then after that, it turned to CDs. And so I only started buying vinyl for the first time in my life about five years ago. So I'm doing the thing where I'm like slowly going back and collecting like a lot of older music, um, stuff that my parents used to have and just classics on vinyl. And then spending a lot of time on Spotify, 
doing deeper dives into all those artists and then also just listening to other playlists. And I'm, I'm starting to discover a ton of new artists, even more now than I think I was while I was even new, in New York. I mean, New York, there's a scene and there's all the bands around there. But I was mostly just those bands, Interpol and, and LCD Sound System, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and, and TV on the radio and Walkman. Those were the peers and those were the th- everyone I was like listening to. But now I'm spending more time just like the, the algorithms work for me. Like like when they suggest songs. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, when they suggest songs. I, I, about one out of five songs that is just randomly suggested to me that I've never heard of, an artist I've never heard of, one out of five of them I'll throw into a playlist. And, you know, you can just start to, like, organize new things and not knowing where they're from. There's a bunch of things I thought, like, oh, that sounds brand new. And then I find out it's from, you know, oh, that's an Arthur Russell song from that I'd never heard. And I thought it was some new artist, right? And so it goes both ways. Oh, interesting. Yeah. A lot of the times I just use Spotify for, I don't know, research on stuff. Uh So I I think its algorithm would be totally skewed, like... (laughs) You know, show tunes or Bengals songs. Like, <laughs> well, let me ask you then. I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you real quickly about um, the musical stuff because my wife and I, we, we worked on a musical. And oh, no kidding! And, and neither of us are big musical fans. And it would, you know, it's it's sort of still in progress the, the thing, but it's made us to start thinking of other musicals. It's just the thing I liked the most about it was was writing for a narrative and, a, and characters that weren't me. and um, I love it. Yeah, so I what, love that. Tell me about the one you've been, that, that, that you were doing and did it change the way you write it all? Um, well, it does because musicals are so, what I'm learning is that there's, there's a lot of factors. Um, there, there's a musical that I'm working on with this playwright, Jonathan Mark Sherman, that's um, about a cult and we're doing it with the public theater, but, you know, we need to find a director. Yeah. You know, until you have a director, you sort of, at some point you have to start like having readings of it and making notes and refining it and like that doesn't work and we should try this differently. Uh, so there's that one. And I was asked to do music for like a potential musical of Girl Interrupted, but that's the the music of which I'm probably going to put out on a record, but the musical, you know, the book of it, like the writing of it is still up in the air and that hasn't really happened. Um, yeah. I, I sort of outpaced, like I wrote too many, like I wrote too many songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like too many songs before there was really a story, so... Um, I've been, uh, my daughter has been reading me a Little House in the Prairie series and I'm like, and I'm sure somebody's already done it. Like that, that would be a great musical. It's like it's it'd be something like it'd be Matilda, but it'd be set in, in out in the oh old west, God. you know. And you'd have Native Americans, you'd have lots of kids, you'd have just. And, and that book is so incredible. Like within the first five pages, like the, 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 Laura and her sister are kicking around a uh, inflated pig's bladder. Right. Paul makes a soccer ball oh out of a God. pig's bladder. And it's such a great, it's so well written. And, and you have to write the music for this musical. Okay. I'm, I'm going to look it up right now. I wonder if there have been a, um, yeah. I mean, it's the, the topics that there have been musicals about already is like, it's kind of amazing. Like somebody wrote a musical based on Die Hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Little House on the Prairie. I'm sure there's like, it's, it's in the works. Somebody owns the IP and it's, you know, it's being cooked, but. Well, and you'd have to like, but you have to get the rights to it, but often the rights don't cost that much. And, yeah. and you know, you pay a certain amount and 
you know, if you don't have a finished product by the end of a certain amount of time or, you know, then the rights revert. Like there's all it's sort of a step down. What if? Uh, Little House on the Prairie is a book musical adapted from, yeah. 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 Creative yeah. team. It's just, uh, yeah. But there's. 20, two, 2008. Yep. It was done. Sorry. But that's the thing. There's like, there's, <laughs> there's a million versions. Like uh, we just were working on Cyrano de Bergerac and there are multiple versions of Cyrano de Bergerac musicals that have been made in, in, yeah. you know, in dr- dramas and, and dramatic versions. So I was thinking if I just release a record of all these incredible songs that are, you know, about with Laura Ingalls and I was even like, just release the record and just get out ahead of everybody or just I'm do it on it. your own and like say, well, this is, you know, if the songs are good enough, then the musical will come to you. You know, that's kind of the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know if the songs are any big. I started writing a song that a bear sings um, this morning. And and I was like, maybe that's, maybe I should back away. Now, now that I've heard <laughs> that there is a song a bear sings, I am afraid I must insist that this musical get made. I agree. Like, I, because to me, the bear alone is worth the price of admission. Well, because who, like a bunch of kids and then there's a bear that starts singing... Are you not telling me kids aren't going to love that thing and families? Who, I think we should work on it. Who doesn't want this? I know. Who doesn't want this musical? That's right. I think this podcast is our pitch. Um, so if you want to join me on this this thing, we'll do this You know, as soon as you finish whatever one you're doing. <laughs> I'm totally down. Yeah. I, I'm totally down. Yeah. I'm your champion. Okay. We'll, we'll make it. You know, and if, if, if somebody already owns the IP for Little House in the Prairie, we'll just make it all about bears or something. Call it something else. <laughs> um. Amy, this has been such a pleasure. I never, I've never met you, and um, I'm a huge fan. And um, also, just I, I, last question: You've written a lot of songs for films, and the, the songs that you wrote for Magnolia and Jerry Maguire were those songs that you had, or were those sort of uh, asked for? Did you write that specifically for those films, or um, mostly asked for? But also, I mean, like the songs I wrote for Magnolia were kind of written at the same time that Paul Thomas Anderson was writing his script. So like we kind of, I don't know, like traded ideas back and forth. Yeah. You know, so he didn't necessarily say write a song for this part, but in reading and talking to him about like what his topics were, I was like, I wrote this song based on this conversation that we just had. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of came together. The way that, specifically Magnolia, where he sort of breaks the form of all these different narratives and everybody sings together and all that stuff, uh, was it definitely uh, the national, we just worked with the director Mike Mills on this on our last record, and he made a film, you know, so we were writing songs that were with a director, and he produced the record too, and it was, it really changed the way I, I write. It just opened up lots of new rooms to go into. It wasn't like it's like it it changed me forever. It just expanded, it pushed the walls out a lot on, on ways to write and perspectives on writing and, and character. Yeah. 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 That's, a, I mean, that's definitely how I'm feeling about my experience writing songs for musicals, is especially musically that, you know, there's definitely a feeling of like, oh my God, I could do anything because I don't have, I don't know, there is always like a little voice in your head when you're writing for yourself where you feel like, this is not like my wheelhouse. Yeah. Like real major chords are not my wheelhouse or like bouncy rhythms are not my wheelhouse. So then, you know, your brain sort of shuts it down. But when you're writing for somebody else, some imaginary person, like, I don't, you know, I could do anything. I can, you know, bring on the seventh chords, bring on the modulations, (laughs) bring on the tempo changes, you know, it's kind of fun. 
Yeah. I've been working a little bit with Booker T. Jones and he's he's bringing in all kinds of colors that I've just never played with. You know, it, it's like you're a painter all your life and then somebody shows up with like orange and yellow and you're like, oh God, I didn't know these existed. You know, I don't need, I didn't yeah. even have these colors. I, I didn't have them in my studio. I never knew how to make yellow. That's exciting. Yeah. Well, Amy, I can't wait to meet in person. Maybe we'll uh, meet at Largo once they open that back up. But let's talk about Little House on the Prairie, the musical. I'm like, I'm seriously excited about that. Please, like, if you wouldn't, you know, I don't know if you do this, but like, please send me songs. I will. I, I am super excited. And I'll, I'll, and I'll send you some super depressing uh, songs, That's mu- musical songs of mine. I, I pitched it to you sort of as a joke, but and I'm actually very serious. I, and so the fact that you're not, you don't see it as a joke. I'm like, okay, good. You're in. Yeah, absolutely. No, <laughs> right. I'm totally in. Let's do it. All right. I'll talk to you soon, Amy. Okay. Yeah. Take care, Matt. Bye. You too. Bye-bye.